General Homer was sentenced to death for permitting appalling atrocities committed by his troops against Filipino and American prisoners during their forced march from Bataan. Was he a war criminal or, as one of his judges later said, an outstanding soldier? Mazaharu Homa was born on the island of Sado, on the west coast of Japan, in 1888. He chose a military career and attended the Imperial Japanese Army Academy, from which he graduated in 1907. He developed an appreciation of the arts and especially of poetry, and he was endowed with a flair for languages. He spent eight years as assistant military attaché at the Japanese Embassy in London, and during that time he lived in both Oxford and London. In the Great War, in which Japan was allied with Britain, France and the United States, he was for a time a military observer on the Western Front, and was attached to the British Army's East Lancashire Regiment. It was while serving with this regiment as a captain that in August 1918 he was awarded the Military Cross, a medal given for exemplary gallantry during active operations against the enemy. In 1925 he was appointed Japanese resident officer in India, and in 1932, no doubt assisted by his excellent command of English, he was chosen to hold the post of military attaché at the embassy in London, where he remained until 1932. He travelled widely. He met Churchill, Gandhi and Mussolini. He also met Fiorello LaGuardia, then mayor of New York, who escorted him on a visit to the Statue of Liberty. He was familiar with the West and its values, but this was later to be held against him. He was also a good soldier, and by 1941 he had risen to the rank of Lieutenant-General. He argued strongly, and against convention in public, against Japan going to war with the Allies. But despite even this outspoken criticism of policy, he was chosen to command the 14th Army, which was tasked with the invasion of the Philippines. Homer performed this task well, albeit more slowly than his superiors wished, and he forced on the Americans the largest military defeat of their history. His unhappy opponent was General Douglas MacArthur. However, more senior Japanese generals believed that Homer had not been sufficiently aggressive. They claimed that he had been contaminated with the West's respect for human life, and had therefore been too careful with his own men's lives, and he was forced into retirement in August 1943. It is incontrovertible that during their occupation of the Philippines the Japanese committed many horrendous war crimes, and it was entirely appropriate that the perpetrators should be brought to account. Accordingly, MacArthur, under authority delegated to him as supreme commander of the Allied powers in the Far East, created a Philippine War Crimes Commission. Its principal targets were General Yamashita and General Homer, and when the war came to an end in August 1945, General Homer was arrested on a charge of war crimes, was taken to the Philippines, and was put on trial. The Commission appeared to accept that it had to act fairly. You will be forgiven if you wonder if that was possible. MacArthur had instituted the Commission to try a man who had defeated him in battle. MacArthur had nominated the judges, and MacArthur had approved the rules of procedure which we shall return to in a moment. And if Homer was found guilty, any appeal would be decided by MacArthur, and it was MacArthur who would decide the punishment. There can be, I suggest, no clearer case 
of the victorious general trying his defeated opponent. Any claim that the system was obviously fair or unbiased is laughable. There was, of course, just a possibility that the judges, five senior generals, four American and one Major General Basilio Valdez, a Filipino, might find the defendant not guilty. The possibility was minimal. MacArthur was their commanding general. MacArthur decided their next posting, and MacArthur would approve their promotions. In other words, MacArthur could make or break them. And just for good measure, the brother of General Valdez had been beheaded by Japanese troops during the Bataan Death March. Quite how he could be called independent, or disinterested, or dispassionate, or free from bias, is difficult to see. However, even if they had returned a verdict or sentence not to MacArthur's liking, MacArthur had the power to remand the case for hearing before a new commission, or even to alter the sentence, in any manner it pleased him. The commission was to try the case according to international law, but the rules of procedure were those set by MacArthur. A moment ago we mentioned these rules, and now I should warn you that these are not some dry technical nicety of no real interest to anyone other than lawyers. They are fundamental to the justice and fairness of the process they are meant to regulate. Let us have a look at some of these rules, and you will then be able to form a view as to whether they are likely to achieve that aim. The rules, officially called Regulations Governing the Trials of Accused War Criminals, were issued on the 5th of December 1945. They stated, The Commission shall apply the rules of evidence and pleading set forth herein with greatest liberality and to achieve expeditious procedure. Rules of evidence have been developed to ensure that defendants are given a fair trial. Inviting a court to apply those rules with the greatest liberality, is a de facto invitation to the court to do whatever it liked. This is not easily reconciled with the administration of justice. If a court in Birmingham, whether Birmingham, Alabama, or Birmingham, England, were to apply rules with the greatest liberality, there would be national outrage within hours. American listeners may perhaps now be wondering how any American court can abrogate the right of due process which is guaranteed under the Fifth Amendment and which is extended in the Fourteenth Amendment of 1869. The answer is simple. Those rights apply to U.S. citizens in the United States, not to foreign nationals outside the United States, even where those foreign nationals appear before an American court. And what about to achieve expeditious procedure, what does that mean? No court wishes to waste time, and reminding them of the fact is a waste of breath. A reference to expeditious procedure in this court's terms of reference carries a clear implication. MacArthur expected a verdict to be delivered with speed. But why? The world was at peace, and, as with the Yamashita trial which had ended a month previously, Whatever time was needed for a considered and just verdict to be arrived at was available. There was no need to rush matters. MacArthur might, of course, have had political pressures in his mind when he demanded expeditious procedure. But the administration of justice should not be tailored to fit a political calendar. If Homer was to be tried, he should have been tried fairly, and whatever time was needed for that fair trial should have been made available. The only fair alternative was not to try him. But MacArthur had made his intentions clear. 
and it would have been a brave officer who was prepared to disappoint him. Let us look at some of the rules of evidence. These were set in a manner such that, and I now quote the regulations, all purported confessions or statements of the accused shall be admissible without prior proof that they were voluntarily given, it being for the commission to determine only the truth or falsity of such confessions or statements. Unquote. A problem had occurred at the trial of General Yamashita. When Yamashita was arrested, no one had told him what his rights were. Of course, if that had happened in Britain or the United States, the trial would have lasted no more than five minutes. But this new rule, imposed by MacArthur, avoided that problem. Anything Homer had said was now admissible, even if it had been beaten out of him. It is at this point that the link with fairness, as generally understood, comes under great strain. Other rules allowed admittance of documents that appeared to have been signed or issued by the Red Cross or investigators, and other documents, even if they were unsworn. One author, Lawrence Taylor, has described the situation pithily but accurately. He said, In essence, MacArthur's rules and procedures were simple. Anything goes. One of the American judges, Brigadier General Arthur Trudeau, gave an interview in 1986 when he was a retired lieutenant-general, in which he expressed his view on the matter. He said, The temper of the times was such that emotions ran high, and sometimes, it seemed to me, superseded the use of reason and judgment. I was troubled by MacArthur's instructions. Those instructions really said that circumstantial and hearsay evidence may be admitted if you run short of sound evidence. Unquote. That statement is deeply troubling. General Trudeau was not a lawyer, but here, having already tried a number of defendants on capital charges, he demonstrates that he does not know what evidence is generally admissible and what is not. To be clear, circumstantial evidence is usually admissible. For example, he was standing next to the body with a smoking gun in his hand, but the weight to be attached to it is decided by the jury. It may properly be termed what Trudeau calls sound evidence. Hearsay evidence, on the other hand, for example, Adam told me that he had heard Bill confess, is generally not admissible in criminal courts in Britain, the United States, or indeed most other countries. It is far from being sound evidence. General Trudeau appears not to be aware of these conventions. The problem of the admissibility of circumstantial and hearsay evidence had been met before in trials taking place in Manila, and the decisions of the Commission, often to reject that evidence, were clearly not to MacArthur's liking. So for Homer, the rules were changed, so that, and, and here I quote, One specially qualified member shall be designated as the law member, whose ruling is final insofar as concerns the Commission on an objection to the admissibility of evidence offered during the trial. Unquote. Trudeau's view of this is as follows. This bothered me. The result was that during some of the earlier stages of the earlier trials, I ruled against the admission of hearsay evidence. I soon found that this was being reported back to headquarters. Then, without a complaint or a ruling against me, which would have been unethical for a higher command to take exception to a member of a court's actions, the policy was suddenly changed so that the law member would be the president of the court. 
In those previous trials, the member chosen as the specially qualified member was General Valdez. By profession, he was a surgeon, but few people would recognise being a surgeon, even a good one, as a qualification for being a law member. Was his claim to qualification perhaps his dead brother? Thus was the scene set for the application of American justice, blind to everything except the facts. A victorious American army trying its defeated Japanese opponent. Homer was served with notice of the prosecution on the 19th of December, 1945. I mentioned in passing that the prosecution team had been working on the case for some months, but that Homer's defence team was appointed only two weeks before the arraignment. It is also right to mention that the Commission asked the prosecution and defence teams when they would be ready to proceed. The defence needed to assemble its witnesses, three-quarters of whom were scattered over Japan, China and Korea, and asked for a delay of a month. The prosecution, perhaps generously, said that it had no objection to any reasonable delay, but added that they would be ready in two weeks. The Commission set a start date for the trial of the 3rd of January, that is, two weeks. The need for expeditious procedure trumped the need for defence witnesses. The charge against Homer was that he did unlawfully disregard and failed to discharge his duties, and that thereby he permitted his troops to commit brutal atrocities. Forty-seven specifications of the charge were supplied. The major thrust of this charge was the commission of war crimes during the Pataan Death March, when some 70,000 or so Filipino and American soldiers had been taken prisoner and then been forced to march from Bataan to a railhead 65 miles to the north. Many, estimates vary between five and 10,000, died in the appalling conditions, either naturally or being killed by their guards. The march had become well known to Americans in January 1944, when the US War Department published accounts of escaped prisoners who had made their way home. There was no doubt that many horrendous atrocities had been committed, and the march was given the name the Bataan Death March. General Homer was called the Beast of Bataan, and many Americans clearly thought that he was the man responsible. They wanted revenge. They wanted blood. The prosecution had no difficulty in proving that numerous atrocities had been committed, and as they recited details of each, Homer expressed shock and horror. As the days passed, with ever more atrocities being described, Homer, according to Robert Peltz, one of his attorneys, became increasingly disillusioned and dejected. Homer denied that he knew these things were taking place. Clearly, it would be very helpful to the prosecution if they could produce to the court a series of witnesses who would claim that they had seen Homer present when an atrocity was actually being committed. Despite having had many months to find those witnesses from the fifty or so thousand survivors of the march, they found no one. But then a defence witness unexpectedly came to their aid. An American master sergeant, one Jimmy Baldassare, was emphatic. He had seen General Homer in an official car with some kind of yellow sticker on the front, passing the San Fernando prisoner of war camp. The New York Times said that the claim greatly advanced the prosecution's case, and it may have done, but was the claim credible? Why was Baldassare the only Allied soldier to have seen Homer? 
Very few photographs of Homer had ever been published, so how did Baldassare know that it was Homer? And Baldassare claimed to have seen Homer in April 1942, and it was now January 1946. Was his memory reliable? You may recall from the podcast on the Belson trial that many prisoners at Belson had firmly and positively identified General Montgomery as one of their camp guards. Homer explained to the Commission that while the death march had been taking place, he was preoccupied with planning future military operations and had delegated responsibility for the movement of the prisoners to a subordinate. He had believed that the general arrangements, which had been made on the assumption that 25,000 reasonably healthy prisoners would come into his custody at the end of April, were adequate. And so indeed they would have been, but in the event there were 70,000 prisoners, many suffering from disease and malnutrition, and they arrived two weeks early. And although the arrangements were manifestly not adequate, he was not properly advised of this fact. General Homer claimed, and it was never disputed, that he had not ordered any action which would constitute a war crime. Indeed, the opposite was true. He had given specific orders that the Filipinos should not be maltreated. Indeed, his order was that they should be treated in a friendly way. It is clear now, as it should have been then, that those orders were countermanded by a Lieutenant Colonel Tsuchi Masanobu. Masanobu was something of a maverick, a disturbed character who had a history of hyperaggression. His luck held out during the war, and wisely he then disappeared from circulation until the post-war war crimes fever had passed. He is thought to have died, true to form, in 1961, while on a mission to advise the Viet Cong. The Commission retired to consider its verdict. The fundamental question before them was whether it was right to find General Homer guilty for not preventing war crimes which he did not know were being committed and which he had given orders should not be committed. And if they did find him guilty, was the guilt so great that it should cost him his life? It was a difficult call to make. Trudeau said in his interview, We'd walk out when we had a break or adjourned the court and say, Thank God we didn't lose it. This could just as well be General MacArthur. But in the dock was not General MacArthur, the conquering general. It was General Homer, the man who had been defeated and on the 11th of February they found him guilty. They reasoned that he had been overall commander, and as such was responsible for the actions of all his subordinates, regardless of any attempt that he had made, or had not made, to ensure that no crimes were committed. The only sentence which they felt they could reasonably impose was the death sentence. Homer's wife appealed for clemency to General MacArthur, but her efforts were of course futile. He affirmed the sentence. General Homer was shot, not hanged, on the 3rd of April. Some, indeed many, were not satisfied that justice had been done. Mr Justice Murphy, a Supreme Court judge, said, Either we conduct such a trial as this in the spirit and atmosphere of our Constitution, or we abandon all pretense to justice, let the ages slip away, and descend to the level of revengeful blood-purgers. Apparently, the die has been cast in favour of the latter course. Unquote. Even Trudeau, one of Homer's judges, appears not to have been fully convinced by the fairness of the verdict. The question at the heart of the matter was command responsibility. 
whether the defendant was responsible for crimes which others had committed. And Trudeau, as part of the interview quoted above, said, There's no question but that some men who were either weak or wounded were shot or bayoneted on this death march. The question is, how many echelons of command up is a person responsible, to the point where you should condemn him for murder or crime? And that is what General Homer was accused of. All of these factors are taken into consideration, and again I am afraid with more emotion than good judgment at that time. We need to cogitate about our wisdom in condemning General Homer to death. I must admit I was not much in favour of it. In fact, I opposed it, but I could only oppose it to a point that allowed him to be shot as a soldier and not hanged, because that took a unanimous verdict, and I would not vote to hang him. I thought he was an outstanding soldier." Unquote. The admission that he opposed it, but he could only oppose it to a point, is surprising. The sentence suggests that he may have had qualms about returning a guilty verdict, and that he certainly opposed the death sentence. If here means that he opposed the passing of the death sentence, but only because it was by hanging, not by shooting, then it is no more than tokenism, and if so, then he made this token because he could not do otherwise. But why not? The role of a judge is to speak his mind, not repeat the view of the majority of his colleagues on the panel, or even, one might fear, the view of his superiors. And it is uncertain what material comfort General Trudeau thought he had delivered to the prisoner by securing a sentence of death by shooting rather than by hanging. It may be that the benefit that he sought was for his own conscience. It is easy to believe that General Homer was a victim of the newly minted principle of command responsibility, which had been developed in 1945 for the trial of General Yamashita. But was this development an important leap forward in international law, as was the definition of crimes of aggression, or had it now served its purpose and could be dispensed with? One opportunity, when the principle could have been reasserted, arose in 1968, during the war in Vietnam, when Lieutenant William Calley massacred 22 unarmed peasants at Mai Lai. He was under the orders of Captain Ernest Medina, and Captain Medina did not prevent the massacre. If Homer, under the principle of command responsibility, was guilty of a crime, was not Medina also guilty? And General Westmoreland, the commanding general, and Lyndon B. Johnson, the President of the United States? We shall never know. The United States Army decided to charge Medina under its own and less stringent military law, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. More recently still, in 2003 and during the Iraq War, the United States Army Reserve soldier, Lindy England, mistreated detainees at a prison at Abu Ghraib and was duly convicted. The general under whom she served, Tommy Franks, clearly did not prevent the mistreatment. And again, under the principle of command responsibility, he was guilty with her. No charges were brought. And in that same year, an innocent Iraqi civilian, Baha Musa, was arrested by soldiers of the Queen's Lancashire Regiment and was then mercilessly beaten to death. Under the doctrine of command responsibility, the British general commanding British forces in Iraq was guilty of permitting the killing. But all of this is in the past, and senior officers, British and American, now rest easy.
If the extreme form of command responsibility did not die its death immediately after the war crimes trials after the Second World War, it is reasonable to think that it now has. When 123 independent states established the International Criminal Court in 2002, they recognized that they needed a definition of command responsibility. They could have adopted the extreme and vicious version used at the trials of Generals Yamashita and Homer, but they did not do so. They adopted a more enlightened and humane version. General Franks has cause to be grateful. The case of General Masaharu Homa, winner of the Military Cross, is, I suggest, an egregious example of victor's justice, a simple case of pure, unalloyed revenge. But you must form your own view.